0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's something lots of parents with young kids are witnessing, their child wheezing.
1: It just sounded like he had a little flutter under his breath when he was breathing out. It was just like a, like almost really angelic sounding if you, you know, if you didn't know it was wheezing. You could tell he was just trying really hard to bring air into his lungs. Like, his belly was moving a lot more than usual. It was terrifying.
0: It's not COVID, but RSV, and it's filling beds at Children's Hospital Colorado. We'll get the picture there and learn about prevention and treatment. Then, how to make an informed choice when you get to the part of your ballot with the names of all those judges. And how Denver's theater scene spawned a major motion picture.
2: Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Morner. Children's hospitals around the country, including in Colorado, are filling up because of a respiratory virus. And we're not talking primarily about COVID in this case, but RSV. The state says it's monitoring outbreaks and hospitalizations. We didn't have to look very far to find a family affected. Greer Hancock is a colleague of ours here at CPR. She has a two-year-old named James who began wheezing.
1: It just sounded like he had a little flutter under his breath when he was breathing out. It was just like a, hmm, hmm like almost really angelic sounding. If you, you know, if you didn't know it was wheezing, you could tell he was just trying really hard to bring air into his lungs. Like his belly was moving a lot more than usual. It was terrifying. I I've heard of RSV, but I I think I just always associated RSV with like little newborns. So the wheezing definitely scared me. There were two nights, And we were questioning both of those nights whether or not to take him to the ER at Children's.
0: Doctors indeed diagnosed James with RSV. He managed to stay out of the hospital. His parents kept his fever down, plied him with water and Pedialyte, and were thrilled that he was relatively calm and could get some rest. After five days at home, it was back to daycare.
1: And we got an email that morning that of the seven kids in his class who had RSV, four of them were in the hospital with it. Wow. So that was really, really, really sobering.
0: Other viruses like enterovirus have also reemerged. And with flu season upon us, doctors fear what they're calling a triple-demic. Dr. Suchitra Rao is an infectious disease specialist at Children's Hospital Colorado. And Dr. Rao, welcome.
2: Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. What
0: exactly is RSV?
2: So RSV is stands for respiratory syncytial virus and so it is a virus that is known to cause respiratory infections both in kids as well as in adults and older individuals now this is a virus that was discovered back in the 1950s and is one of the viruses that we traditionally see um, peaking around the winter months every year and so what we know about this virus is that it tends to, when it infects different cells of the body, it causes those different cells to clump together. And then that um, interaction can mean that you have an increase in a lot of thick secretions. And so when we see this manifesting in kids, we'll often see it presenting with cold-like symptoms, um, but then it can become more severe because you have this manifestation of a lot of upper um, and lower respiratory secretions that develop as well.
0: More severe meaning that it could lead to pneumonia?
2: Yeah that's correct so the, the way that it usually infects humans is that it starts just by invading those upper airways. So you initially might get cold-like symptoms, um, like a runny nose, sore throat, that sort of thing. And that's what we typically see with, with our adults. But then what can happen is that uh, with babies who have generally smaller airways, mm. that it's very easy for it to then cause problems down in that lower respiratory tract. And that can manifest with airway swelling, as well as those plugging of secretions. And it can cause something um, that's called bronchiolitis. So this is more of a viral um, consequence of RSV directly, uh, where you get that inflammation of the airways, thick secretions, and then that leads on to difficulty breathing. And so that's a little bit different from the the bacterial pneumonia that we, we see with other infections.
0: I hadn't heard of this before, but James indeed was diagnosed with this. I've heard of bronchitis, but this is bronchiolitis, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. So bronchitis is something that is often described in older folks and adults and older individuals where you can get swelling of the the larger airways. The bronchioles are even smaller airways than the bronchi. And in children in particular, we see this manifestation. So when we see the winter seasons and what we're seeing right now is a lot of children admitted with bronchiolitis, so inflammation of those bronchioles or those lower airways.
0: Hmm. Uh, So that figure uh, that certainly made me go, wow, uh, was that out of the seven kiddos in James's daycare who had RSV, four had to be hospitalized. Uh, Now, that's obviously not a scientific sample, but does, does that number surprise you?
2: Right, it is very striking. And it is something that we have been observing both from our communications with our local health department that have notified us of a number of different outbreaks from RSV in daycare settings. And then just what we're observing here in the hospital. So it's really striking just how much RSV there is here in the community. And just to give you an example, um, our microbiology lab that does a lot of respiratory testing of patients that are seen in inpatient settings, as well as in the emergency rooms, as well as in clinics, are reporting that uh, a a little over one in three uh, respiratory tests are testing positive for RSV right now.
0: What do we owe this to? The fact that we're all, you know, circulating and many of us are maskless after the pandemic? Uh, Put this into some context for us.
2: Yeah, so there's a few theories about why we're seeing this wave of RSV now. And it does have to do with all those measures that were in place during the earlier phases of the pandemic. So all of those things that we were doing in terms of the lockdown measures, in terms of the mask wearing, in terms of not being all, all crowded means that we were very effective in being able to um, eradicate or minimize the spread of SARS-CoV-2. It was very effective at preventing the spread of RSV as well as influenza and other respiratory viruses. So what we saw was essentially those those viruses going on vacation for, for one of those seasons. <laughs> we did see RSV emerge last season, um, but what happens now is we have this more um, this greater population of people who didn't get that immunity boost last year or the year before. And so that means that there is a greater vulnerable population. And without that immunity, that's why we're seeing it now coming back in a big way Mm. as we're reintegrating into society.
0: What is this scene now at Children's Hospital Colorado? I mean, is RSV the dominant reason kids are there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what we're seeing here at Children's Hospital Colorado is is really something that the rest of the country has been observing, which is that our hospital beds are at maximal capacity, with uh, lots of young children being admitted with respiratory infections, um, mostly due to RSV. And so we talked about bronchiolitis being one of those things. Um, In older kids, we talk about pneumonitis, which is also a viral inflammation of those um, lower um, respiratory tract. Um, We're also seeing kids that are coming in with asthma exacerbations. Um, So they just get nasty asthma attacks and have to come in and get extra treatment. Um, And so, yes, all of our hospital beds are full and we're really having to think of sort of creative and innovative ways to be able to see everybody and maintain our excellent standards of care.
0: Like what?
2: So some of the things that we're doing in our hospital um, is to set up temporary evaluation facilities, say in the emergency department, to reduce the length of time that people are waiting to be seen. Uh, we've had to bring in extra medical providers to help support the hospital teams. Um, we've had to convert various clinical areas in our hospital into additional patient rooms. And a lot of pediatric facilities are very comfortable with managing patients that are adults, um, but we've had to do some restricting of um, just seeing pediatric patients um, since uh, that's something that we've just had to really prioritize during this time.
0: If you're just joining us, uh, this is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and my guest is infectious disease specialist, Dr. Suchitra Rao of Children's Hospital Colorado. We're talking about RSV, which is affecting kids, uh, but we're, we're also talking about A triple-demic, which is the combination of RSV that has come roaring back after the pandemic, uh, also flu and COVID-19. And uh, how concerned are you, Doctor, of the kind of confluence there?
2: Yeah, I really do think that the, the triple-demic is the right term that we need to be thinking about and preparing for right now. So um, we just talked about RSV cases surging early during our um, fall timeframe, something that we typically see in the winter. Um, and then if we wanted to talk about the other virus we need to be preparing for, um, that would be influenza. So what we saw, we had some forewarning of this based on what we saw from the Southern Hemisphere during their winter. Winter months, where countries like Australia experienced a more severe and a, an earlier influenza season, mm. and then we started to see cases trickling in through the southern states and, and and the eastern states, and now it's made our way it's made its way into Colorado as well. So we have started to see cases of influenza um, here at, at the hospital. The numbers have remained low, but I think it's a forewarning for an early and potentially more severe influenza season.
0: Okay, and and kids can be vaccinated, right? Against flu,
2: that's right, exactly. And so this is where we're doing a lot of messaging right now to advise um, parents as well as um, caregivers and and really all individuals um, to go ahead and get their flu vaccine if they haven't already. So something that we're recommending for everyone eligible who's uh, six months of age and older.
0: You know, this all seems like just a kind of viral soup. So I I want to note one more observation from Greer Hancock, whose two-year-old son James contracted RSV and is all better now.
1: It didn't even cross my mind that it could have been RSV because he's been in daycare since five months and he has been sick like every six weeks because he's in daycare with just like a minor cold. And so we just thought, oh, here's another little cold.
0: I mean, I can imagine parents going, okay, my kid's sick. Which of the thousand things is it? I mean, is it a common cold? Is it RSV? Is it potentially the flu? Uh, When should I bring a kid to the doctor or the hospital in any case?
2: Right, absolutely. So this is the time where there is that milieu of multiple different respiratory infections, and there's really no one set of criteria that helps you say for sure that this is one virus versus the other. Uh-huh. And so if symptoms are mild, so if it's really just dealing with um, with low-grade fevers or a runny nose or with a cough, and otherwise the child is well-appearing, um, that they really just need to be making sure to prevent someone else getting sick. Um, but if those, you know, maternal, paternal caregiver warning bells are ringing, um, those are the times to be thinking about having your child seen. And so some of those warning signs are going to be if they note that a child is breathing faster than usual, it looks like they're having trouble getting air in or are using some of their additional, what we call accessory muscles to help them breathe. Mm-hmm. So what that can look like is using your neck muscles, using your abdominal muscles or seeing the um, space between your rib cage sucking in. Those are signs of the respiratory distress or increased work of breathing. And so that is a, a sign to really come in and be seen and, um, the other thing that we do note with younger kids is it can be a little bit more subtle. So for babies, for example, um, the first signs might be just poor feeding, difficulty feeding, not wanting to take the bottle, not wanting to nurse. Um, and we know that uh, dehydration can be a very common uh, consequence of these types of viruses. So if there's any concerns with the decreased number of wet diapers, poor feeding, that sort of thing, it's also a very important time to be coming in. And you're going to be much more vigilant for those very younger kids, so those under 12-month-of-age um infants um, then say for the older school-aged child
0: we have just a few seconds is rsv pretty treatable
2: so rsv right now we don't have a specific antiviral there's no magic bullet a lot of this is going to be supportive care Uh when kids get admitted they're getting oxygen they're getting suctioning Um, so really just waiting for that immune system to really take over and fight that virus and get rid of it is really what we have right now
0: Thank you so much, Doctor. I appreciate your time. That is Dr. Suchitra Rao, Infectious Disease Specialist at Children's Hospital Colorado, also Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the CU School of Medicine. When we come back, how voters can judge the judges. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1: Colorado Democrats control both chambers of the state legislature. But Republicans see an opportunity this year, from the governor's office to the halls of Congress. The parties are contesting for Colorado's future, and we're covering it every step of the way. Come to CPR News every day for more on Colorado's election, also at CPR.org.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On your midterm ballot this year is a long list of judges. Voters decide whether to retain them, yes or no. Colorado's system was a bit of a mystery to our next guest until he entered the process and eventually became a judge. Russ Carparelli served on the Colorado Court of Appeals for a decade. He's now retired. Judge, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Um, Back when you applied to be a judge, Indeed, you didn't know the ins and outs of the selection process. What was your reaction when you found out as you, know, as you learned this?
3: I thought, it was, I thought it was excellent. You know, the, um, the process, you have to uh, indicate your experience and who your opponents were, and et cetera. And about four days after I applied, uh, a op- former opponent called me and said, are you applying to be a judge? And I said, well, how do you know that? He said, because they called me. They're checking on you. What do you mean, a former opponent? Well, as I was a trial lawyer, uh-huh. and I had had somebody that represented the opposing counsel, yeah. the opposing client, and uh, and I had to list who the, who those were. Not all of them, but I had to list several of them and and several of the judges. And apparently, they got right on it and started checking.
0: And so, this really is the birth of the process, right? So we're we're talking about. Uh, more the end of the process on the ballot, but there's this vetting, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But to become a judge in Colorado, a commission interviews candidates, recommends a few to the governor, who then appoints someone to the bench. That's what you're getting at there. And then once someone becomes a judge, voters decide whether they get to keep their jobs. What's the best way for a voter to make that decision, which is what we face this midterm?
3: When you go to your ballot, you're going to see a a long list of judges. Probably you don't know any of them. Mm. Uh, In the blue book, there is a summary of the evaluations by the commission, and that's the performance commission. We've had that since 1988. The Performance Commission sends out surveys to uh, to people who have been in front of the judge, who have observed the judge, lawyers, litigants, jurors, law enforcement, and those surveys come back and the commission reviews those and then comes up with its summary. It also interviews, meets with the judge, and talks about what what the feedback has been. For a citizen. Go to the blue book and read through the, uh, the, su- the summaries. If there's anything that gives you concern, then go to the website knowyourjudge.com and find the actual survey report. Mm-hmm. And in the survey report, there are 31 uh, topics, essentially, that are rated by people who saw the judge in action. And you can then apply your own judgment, your own values, as to what's important to you, and if the judge rated low somewhere, um, then you evaluate that. Certainly also, the summary says whether the judge meets performance standards or does not meet. And if you see does not meet, then you definitely ought to pause and go to the report.
0: You know, I think the takeaway for me is that it is not enough simply to have your ballot if you want to make an informed decision about the judges, you need the supplementary information, be it the blue book that comes in the mail or that additional information online. Uh, just blindly going through the names is that's not quite enough. It's, it's not like a ballot measure where the text of the thing is going to give you the major story.
3: The, the summary, you really do need to, Just as you read on the on the ballot measures, you read what it says there for and against. For the judges, read what the Performance Commission has said. The Performance Commissions, by the way, every judicial district, 22 of them, have local people on those Performance Commissions. And most of the people, the majority, are non-lawyers. Oh,
0: that's interesting. All
3: of the judges on this year's
0: ballot meet performance standards. So not a single one is
3: flagged as does not meet performance standards? How can that possibly be? I would say, first of all, when you're hiring, you hire well. And so our- Then that speaks to the early process that we began with. If we start off with a merit selection process that is effective, that is a good hiring process, we first get high-quality people, or we are more likely to get high-quality people. Then there is continued legal education for those judges and training. and then there is also uh, interim reports. So you, there is a report done the year that you stand for retention, but there's also one done a couple of years earlier. And at that report, the commission meets with the judge and, and gives feedback and if there's anything going wrong they they give that feedback and maybe they do a performance plan for a performance improvement plan hmm. so but but that is not to say that happens every year in the last four judicial election cycles six judges have been non-retained by the voters
0: you are listening to Colorado Matters I'm Ryan Warner and we are talking about how to vote when you get to all of those names of judges on your ballot uh, doing so requires more than your ballot. The blue book, Supplemental Information, and the website. What is that again? Know your... Know your com.
3: When you look more
0: closely at these evaluations, some judges do have lower scores than others. Uh, attorneys do seem to be among the harshest critics. A significant percentage will say they don't think a judge meets performance standards, even though the commission deems them to have met them. Uh, so... You could look, as you say, at the finer points of the evaluation. And do you think that if if a voter indeed thinks, my goodness, they they might meet the standards, but this feedback seems stinging, would you encourage them to say, don't retain? I mean, is that I mean, they're I certainly within their rights.
3: Each voter has to make their own determination of where that line is. Yeah, uh, I would say. Based on their own values, on their own judgments, they should cast their vote in a, consistent with what they believe. And even if there is a meet standards, if if especially if it's a, a mixed vote, uh, so it will say meet standards unanimously, or it'll say that it is you know five to five to five. It would say six to four or something like that. Then make your own judgment about what, and particularly with what is being graded down? Is it something that you think is really important? Did you ever get a bad evaluation? I never got a bad overall evaluation. I got a criticism. Uh, and the criticism was that I was abrupt with lawyers at times. Hmm. And, uh, and it was true that I was abrupt with lawyers at times. Did and you stop being abrupt? I tried to be... I, I don't know that I completely stopped, but I definitely uh, worked To give them a little bit more room. But uh, there's time limits. When I was on the court of appeals, each lawyer only got 15 minutes to argue. And I wanted to get the most bang for the buck out of what, you know, what the discussion is about. Uh, So I would say I improved that. I did not eliminate it.
0: So did the system make you a better jurist,
3: do you think? I think so. I do think so. I mean, we're aware that we are being evaluated. Uh-huh. We are aware that we serve at the pleasure of the, of the people. I mean, it is not a matter that, uh, that I have a fiefdom where, where I can do whatever I please because I'm all powerful. Right. It's it not is, a
0: lifetime appointment. It's not a lifetime
3: appointment. And so there's a great awareness that I'm serving the people and, and the feedback lets me know how to do that better. Let's me know where I might have blind spots. If I remember
0: from my political science days in college, I think this is called the Missouri system. Uh, and, you know, there are all kinds of ways to elect judges. Uh, you can do so in, in partisan ways. Uh, why, why does Colorado do what it does? The... the...
3: Because we want judges to adhere to the law as it's written and be fair and impartial to each party. The concern is that the election system draws the judge into a political process. First of all, in order to get nominated, you have to gain the favor of party, of the of the political party of your choice. Hmm. The political party might have great influence, great uh, input from Insurance companies, banks, corporations—you um, have to ra- you have to raise the money. Once you get elected, if you get elected, then if you run again, if you're going gonna to get reelected, you have to take time away to raise money. And in that pro, we don't want judges doing that. And and we don't want ju- judges aren't representatives the way our elected representatives represent the the will of the people. What we do is we review what those representatives create as law.
0: Through Colorado Wonders, Anthony Letts of Castle Rock submitted this question. As much as I want to think that judges are nonpartisan, that is not the case. So these are Letts' beliefs. Just look at the Supreme Court, he says. How do I find judges' party affiliation so I can decide whether to retain them?
3: Well, first of all, I would say that you can look at the Supreme Court but that court is handling only the most difficult cases, and it is a highly politicized court. But what we're talking about on the ballot is mostly trial court judges, hmm. and the trial court judges are, are in the courtroom every day, trying to give fair, fair and impartial justice to each side, regardless of race, religion, everything, and and it's uh, and they do it alone. Um, I would say that you can look for party affiliations, I believe, on the Secretary of State website, but the party affiliation doesn't tell you anything, doesn't tell you enough. John Paul Stevens was appointed by a Republican. He turned out to be quite a liberal justice. Hmm. Um, We have that history, but I would say don't look at the United States Supreme Court with regard to politicization in Colorado. Think about the trial courts. Think about what would you want when you walk into that courtroom as a party.
0: We have just a few seconds. And I think voters this year will be asked uh, about creating a new judicial district, right? Amendment D. Yeah, and I, I suppose that's just a function of growth.
3: It is a function of growth. I think it is mostly the, the Amendment D is about how to put judges into that district. I think it's already been created by the legislature for 2025. The question is, how do you populate it with judges? With judges. Thank you so much, Judge Carparelli. I appreciate your time. My pleasure, right.
0: Retired Judge Russ Carparelli served on the Colorado Court of Appeals for 10 years. He's also a founder of Our Courts, a public education program. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with a story that began on a Denver stage and ended up in Hollywood. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.
2: Who will be Colorado's next governor, the next U.S. senator, and who will represent us
1: in the House of Representatives? This November, you get to choose. You also get to decide 11 questions, from legalizing psychedelic mushrooms to cutting the income tax. When your ballot leaves you with more questions than answers, Colorado Public Radio is here to help in both English and Spanish, in the voter's guide at CPR.org.
0: You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Discovery and Finding Hidden Gems is how the artistic director of the Denver Film Festival describes the event, which kicks off today, featuring more than 200 movies from around the world, which Matthew Campbell screened himself.
4: The hidden gems of the festival is really, you know, my favorite part, because those are the type of films that one might not be able to ever see again. Most of the large films, you know, the red carpets and whatnot, those will be released in theater in short order, but it's those hidden gems throughout the program that I really love highlighting. Uh, the Island is one of which I am a sucker for adult animated films. And this film is from Brazil. It's in English, but um, it's a surrealist, almost musical Robinson Crusoe type story, which is fantastic visual language within it's really fascinating i'm kind of drawn to the weird and wacky type films but then we also have very personal empathetic stories one that sticks out to me is rice boy sleeps Mm. which is a canadian film about korean immigrant mother and her young son and following through the years of her raising him and him becoming an adult and it's a little heartbreaking but it's also very beautiful and it's such a sweet tale of this this son and mother relationship
0: one of the films that's generating a ton of buzz is the whale it was written by samuel hunter and first debuted as a play in denver hunter will receive the festival's excellence in writing award
4: it's um a, a film that's going to have a lot of conversation around it we love those types of films that spark debates and opinions and getting the audience to really uh, dig into it. This is the first
0: all-in-person Denver Film Festival since the pandemic began. Campbell says togetherness is an important part of experiencing the
4: arts. I hope that everyone who attends the film festival this year has an amazing time. We want to have our audiences come back in full force. We realize that it's been a challenging past two years and that we're not clearly out of the pandemic at this point, but we truly value the communal experience of seeing cinema together to create that community conversation, to have those experiences with one another and to be able to interact with filmmakers. It's so invaluable that we hope that we can contribute to the overall intellectual debate and art scene of Denver.
0: And he says there's no need to be intimidated.
4: You know, when people, newcomers ask me, you know, what should I see? It's always like, well, the program is so vast and it's over 12 days. So whatever day that you have available, just look at what's playing that day and pick something that you might not have otherwise seen. It's all about discovery. So go with something that, sounds a little bit off the beaten track, and I promise you won't be disappointed.
0: That is Matthew Campbell, Artistic Director of the Denver Film Festival. The 45th annual event kicks off today and runs through Sunday, November 13th. Okay, let's talk more about The Whale. The much-anticipated movie stars Brendan Fraser as a reclusive English teacher living with severe obesity. He's trying to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter in one final attempt at forgiveness. In 2011, writer Samuel D. Hunter sent his script for The Whale to the Denver Center Theatre Company, a blind submission to its new play summit. Obviously, that set a lot in motion. As the film version earns worldwide attention, Hunter remembers the Denver stage debut fondly. As we mentioned, he'll be back for the Denver Film Festival to receive the Excellence in Writing Award. Samuel Hunter spoke with CPR arts and culture reporter
5: Eden Lane. I cannot wait to be there. I can't tell you. Even before... I knew I was getting an award or anything. I Even before that, when I saw Denver on the list, I emailed A24 and I was like, can I please go back to Denver? I haven't been there since the play premiered there and I have such wonderful memories of being there. And so I'm so happy that this is working out. Both me and my husband are coming. Oh, that'll be great. Yeah, yeah. And we're leaving our daughter with grandparents for a couple of days and it's the very first time we've ever done that. So we're really excited to be there.
6: So it should be no surprise that your screenings sold out like right away. Especially after Venice and then London, where they never give standing ovations. And you got... (laughs) (laughs) They have a reputation for being very
5: reserved. Yes. Yeah. I was surprised. We were all surprised. It was great.
6: But I have to say, it's no surprise to me having talked to you while you were developing this piece. Well, thank you. Can you talk to me about how it even started to become a movie after the success here? And then it had a New York run and a couple of others. How did it become a movie?
5: Well, it was this incredible thing that happened where, you know, I had uh, that beautiful production in Denver. And then several months later, it went to Playwrights Horizons in New York. And, you know, I felt like I had scaled Mount Everest. I was like, oh my gosh, it's, it actually happened. I had these gleaming professional productions of this play that's very personal and dear to me. And then I get a call out of the blue that says Darren Aronofsky saw the play and he wants to meet with you. And that was 10 years ago. So I met with him very, you know, anxious and, and not knowing what to expect. And I, I showed up and I met him at an editing bay and I like, I'm very, remember this very well, like rounding the corner and there's Russell Crowe's face on a big screen. Cause he was in the middle of the edit for Noah. And we had, you know, an initial conversation about it. And in one of our early meetings, Darren was like, you know, I think we should keep this in the two bedroom apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was so happy when he said that because every time I ideated about doing that traditional thing about opening it up, you know, like showing Ellie at home or, or, or at school or, or Liz at work or Mary at home, or it, it just kind of was like, I, I don't know what added value this is. And I realized that like keeping a film in the confines of the two bedroom apartment is untraditional, but I also think that's what this story fundamentally wants. And You know, over the years I would intersect with him every so often and we'd talk about changes to the script or ways to make it more cinematic. Um, but it really wasn't until and I knew that 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 Darren was on the hunt for the right Charlie. And I knew that Darren, you know, is such an exacting director that he would never make this movie unless he had full confidence that he had found the right Charlie. And I knew that he was looking everywhere on earth for this for the right person, but he never Floated any names past me? Did you float
6: any names for him? I
5: don't, I might have over the years, but honestly, I don't even remember. I mean, I, you know, I, I always brought up the actors who did, you know, the, the early productions, you know, like in Denver and in New York and Chicago. And, but, but I also knew that he needed to tell this story, you know, the way that he wanted to tell it. And, and so I, I, I tried to just kind of give him his space. And, you know, seven, eight years in, he sends me an email and he says, what about Brendan Fraser? And so, I knew that since he was actually sending a name to me that he meant business. So Darren rented a little theater in the East Village and we did a reading in the screenplay with Brendan.
6: What was that like for you? <gasps> Before you even walked into the room for that reading, what was it like for you to to hear Brendan Fraser's name?
5: Well, I immediately took to Google because I was <laughs> like, well, what's he been up to? And and I read this, I believe it was a GQ profile of Brendan talking about what his life has looked like for the past you know 10 or so years or maybe even longer than that and reading the profile and reading these quotes from Brendan I was like there might be something here I think like Darren has really maybe found something there's something about the dna of this character and what Brendan has been through in the past few years that like they're very different you know what i mean they're they're, they're not the same guy in any way but but there's something, there's something there so when we did the reading, about 10 minutes in, it was just like, oh my gosh, he, he knows it. He, like, he, he knows exactly who this guy is. He knows and I've seen a lot of people do this role, and I know what it needs, and I know what it lives or dies by. And Brendan has this uncanny ability to hold deep joy and deep despair simultaneously. Which is exactly what the role needs. It needs to be this kind of like shining lighthouse in a dark, dark sea. And he got that from moment one. And so I think after that reading, Darren and I kind of looked at each other and we were like, whoa, I think, I think this might be it. But then two weeks later, the pandemic hit and, um, and we all, you know, went indoors. Uh, and so that complicated things further. It was kind of this big act of faith, all of us coming together in this warehouse in Newburgh, New York to, you know, in the middle of a pandemic to tell this very emotional, very searching story of a, of a man trying to reconnect with his daughter. You know, it's a credit to Darren that he had me on set the entire time and leaned on me very heavily and and had me work directly with the actors quite a bit. In what way? Well, basically I was there the entire shoot. So I should say we did three weeks of rehearsal before anybody turned a camera on. Like a play. Like a play. And And Darren actually like had them tape out the set in this warehouse just like you would if you were rehearsing a play and and Darren on on day 1 was like okay we're a theater company
6: not many first time playwrights who are being uh, adapted to a film for the first time uh, because as you noted earlier this was your first big glamorous professional production when it was when it was a That's play right. <laughs> not many get this ability to not only hold the screenwriting for themselves, but to be so engaged in the filmmaking. Exactly. Walk us through that. How did that happen for you?
5: Well, I think, you know, Darren has never exactly worked with a writer like this before. And I think at a certain point he realized that I wrote this play from a lot of very personal places. You know, I'm a a gay kid from North Idaho who went to a fundamentalist religious school and for many years self-medicated with food. And that was the place from which I, I told this story. And I think Darren recognized that and I think not only did he want to respect me and be generous toward me for that reason but I think he realized there's utility in that that like I know this guy you know on this very deep elemental level and that I could be useful to him uh, as a collaborator
6: and bringing some authenticity that he might not otherwise have earned
5: that's exactly right that's exactly right and I, and to to his credit you know like Darren could have really easily been like thank you for the script we'll see you at the premiere maybe <laughs> you know <laughs> like, like which which
6: often happens it often happens
5: and he, you know he could have hired a different screenwriter he could have rewritten it him, himself and and never he never even floated the possibility and I'm I'm so glad that he didn't because I, I I think it has an integrity that it otherwise maybe wouldn't have had
6: you've made very subtle changes that I noticed in the in the core of the script I mean of course there's changes because it's it's much more cinematic, yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're still in the yes. same location. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of the same dialogue with a few minor changes. Mm-hmm. Our young man, for example, we... No longer identify him as Mormon specifically. That's right. Can you talk about what went into that decision making?
5: You know, it's funny. I, you know, I, I first started writing this play in like 2009. Uh, you know, in my in my late 20s, I'm 41 now. You know, I, I I've written over a little over a dozen plays since I wrote The Whale, and and so I feel like I've gained so much more experience as a writer. And over the last 10 years, I've looked at the script at various. I haven't been working constantly on the Whale screenplay for 10 years, but you know, at various points, I would re-engage with it. And I think one of the big reasons I changed the character from being a Mormon to being more of a fundamentalist Christian is that I think maybe when I wrote the play, I made the character a Mormon perhaps in a bit of an act of self-protection because the the church that the kid attends in the movie is much more similar to the fundamentalist Christian school that I attended when I was in my teens. Um, and so I felt like I could I, I as an older person who has been through years of therapy, I could maybe like approach that side of myself with a little bit more freedom and authenticity. And then, you know, there was just like I think in reenvisioning it for the screen, it just made me look at it in different ways and think about, you know, the complex emotional terrain in different ways. I'm also a dad now to a little girl.
6: Isn't that interesting that you're you're a girl dad and he's a girl dad? Yes. <laughs> in a way. Yes. What did that do to impact your changes or your deepening of the script for, for this film?
5: I think I've always, on some level, known I wanted to be a dad. But when I first wrote the script, it was pretty theoretical. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think I knew I wanted to be a parent, but that sense of fatherly love and fatherly affection was a, a, a bit more theoretical to me, but it is so real to me now. I mean, that, you know, of like all the all the cliches are true. Like when you have a kid your heart is on the outside of your body. And so when I was reengaging with this character, you know, the idea of like of a father desperately trying to reconnect with a, a daughter was so real to me. As much as I love Charlie and as much as he's a part of me, he did something really egregious to this little girl, one that is unfathomable to me now as a dad. And, and so I think that, that aspect of the script really deepened and sharpened for me.
6: Can you talk to me about what your hope is now that this has happened to your, because the film is not merely an adaptation of the play, which could very easily happen with a, a a first time screenwriter adapting an early work. Mm -hmm. It's its own thing. It's definitely, it's mm-hmm. it's the same characters, it's the same story, but it's definitely its own thing. It didn't feel like we just yeah. did a pro shot of the play. We had different entry points right, into the story. Right. Can you talk to me about what you hope for this film and and these characters and audiences receiving them?
5: Yeah, wow. I mean, I, I think, this is going to get a little grandiose, so forgive me, but I think we live in pretty... Cynical times. I think even more so than when I wrote the play. I mean, I wrote the play feeling like the world was lacking in empathy. Uh, it's one of the big reasons I wrote the play. Uh, and th- the reason I wrote the play from such like an earnest place. And I think that that has only gotten worse <laughs> in 2022. I think we're even more distanced from one another. I think we're even more suspicious of one another. I think we're more, we hold each other at arm's length even more. And I think that the the sort of radical act of this this story in this film is an act of hard-won hope mm. and saying we should have faith in other people. It is a worthy endeavor to have faith in other people because I think that cynicism is cheap and perversely comforting <laughs> uh, and it easily masquerades as sophistication or intelligence. And I actually think that cynicism is pretty unintelligent and pretty easy. I think the harder thing now is to have faith in people. And I think that's what this movie is asking.
6: Mm-hmm. One thing that really sort of shone brightly in a very different way in this film than when we saw it on stage is the very small character of the pizza delivery person. <laughs> I, d- I don't want to project onto it, but it was almost as if the people who are watching your film all of a sudden get a very quick glimpse of, of what they're like when they're not sitting there in the dark watching this movie in his reaction. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's easy to give over and be and you know be accepting for this character played by an actor that so many people have loved and then you showed us who many of us are when we're not sitting there.
5: That's right. I mean I I wrote in the pizza guy because I wanted him to remind the audience that you know like to your point like i think about 10 minutes into this film hopefully any prejudices that some audience members not all but some audience members might bring into this story have melted away because there's this character in this beautiful performance and this man with a heart as big as the moon but i wanted to remind people that like there's still the outside world that hasn't been in this room with this guy that is going to harshly judge him and that that, that world hasn't changed You know, even even though hopefully our our hearts and minds were the people who do bring in the prejudices, their hearts and minds have changed by the time we see this pizza guy. But the world hasn't. Um, And that's the world that Charlie has been inhabiting his entire
4: life.
6: You're doing all of these interviews for your film, but you don't always get asked the kinds of things you'd like to talk about or time runs out or. The interviewer's skill didn't take you where you wanted to go. So in all of that, what were you hoping you'd get to say during any of these interviews that you either haven't had a chance to or I haven't given you the space to say?
5: Boy, that's a really good question. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, I don't know. It's something about how you know, this play does, I I first wrote this play thinking maybe I'm not going to show this to anybody you know like maybe this play is only for me i was teaching expository writing to very disaffected kids in new jersey desperately trying to connect with them and like charlie does in the movie at one point i begged my students to just write something honest and one of my students wrote uh, the line that ended up in the play in the film i think i need to accept that my life is not going to be very exciting and so when i started writing this i was like i guess i'm going to write a play about an expository writing teacher is anybody going to care about that but But the only way, and and I had some false starts, but I think the only way that I could really connect with it is if I told myself, okay, I might just be writing this only for myself. This might never leave my hard drive because that way I can put some more personal stuff on the line that up until that point I hadn't accessed because I was maybe too scared to access it. It felt too close to me. So when I wrote it you know, and, and very tenuously kind of brought it to the writing group I was in and, and showed it to very few people. It, it felt like this really vulnerable thing, this very vulnerable act. And in many ways, even though I have so much distance on it, it still feels very vulnerable, you know what I mean, to, to share this story with audiences and to, you know, to hand it over to to these actors. But but I have been so overjoyed that, that it's found open... Hearts and open minds. It's, it's, it, and I, I've felt with Darren and Brendan and, and with these audiences that I've been a part of, just like so protected. So, really, I just feel kind of awash in gratitude these days, uh, truly. So, uh, and I cannot wait to be back in Denver. I mean, there's something that is so beautiful about the full circle mm-hmm. of like, You know like trepidatiously like sharing it with an audience in that in one of the one of the first readings the play ever had in that um in the new play summit and now coming back with it as a film i can't wait to be there it's 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 you know it's the festival i'm most excited about attending
0: samuel hunter wrote the play and the screenplay the whale he spoke with cpr arts and culture reporter eden lane the movie is part of this year's denver film festival which begins today Hunter will receive the festival's Excellence in Writing Award. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our
5: cast and crew. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton,
4: Pete Kramer,
6: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Folcher,
4: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano,
6: Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Woodfield.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Follow us everywhere. You're with CPR News and KRCC.